0: Welcome to the Valley College Connection, where John Kauai and Scott Wigand, two Valley professors, engage in a conversation about success with educators and students. Each week, they'll sit down with a different guest to find out ways each of us have had to plan, persevere, and overcome to where we are now. The show will also highlight resources and services that are working to make a difference at Valley College. We would like to welcome Feng Nguyen, professor of art to the Valley College Connection, We'd love to get to know your story and what eventually led you to LA Valley College.
1: Sounds good. Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me here, John. Um, So let me start with saying, I always say this when I introduce myself, that I am a, a refugee. I was born in Vietnam in the late 70s. My father is a survivor of the genocide in Cambodia and biked his way across the border to Vietnam where he sought asylum. And my mother is ethnically Chinese, but born in Vietnam, and so was I. And in the late 70s, we fled and arrived in the United States. And the first place we landed was Mount Pleasant, Michigan, which at that time, we were one of the very first Southeast Asian families in a very small town. My family saw snow for the first time, so it was a very overwhelming experience for my family. And after a couple of years, they decided that we needed to be in a place that was warmer, but also that had more folks who looked like us. So Southeast Asian. And we moved to Los Angeles when I was about four years old where I grew up. I grew up in mostly immigrant neighborhoods in LA. So I had the privilege and honor of growing up with folks who looked like me and had non-anglicized names. So I went to an elementary school called Castellar Elementary in Chinatown, Los Angeles, at a time in the eighties where there's so many Southeast Asian um, refugees and immigrants, as well as Mexican immigrants. So th- that's my background. Growing up in an elementary school where newsletters would be sent out always in Chinese, English, and Spanish. My principal was Chinese American from Hawaii. Um, and so I'm really grateful for that that upbringing.
0: What kind of work was your father able to find when, when you immigrated here?
1: Um, he was a janitor in the church. He was a busboy at a, a restaurant. My mother sewed. So um, we had a machine at home and I think it was Battlestar Galactica or some kind of show similar to that where she made a costume for $50. Um, So they just, you know, did whatever jobs that were available. And since we were sponsored by a church, church members who would help us out. Um, but my father's an entrepreneur, you know, he knew that he couldn't expand and had his really incredible vision to be a successful businessman and support his family in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. And he heard about this place called LA where there are a lot of, um, Asians, uh, that he, he feel like, okay, I can, I can really support my family and start my business.
0: Yeah, that's very close to my family. My story also. My my grandfather was a janitor for a Japanese um, newspaper. Wow! And my uh, grandmother was also a seamstress. Uh huh. And then eventually, you know, he 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 bought a very inexpensive hotel and. And um, they both spoke Spanish, despite being Japanese. That's very common
1: back in the day.
0: Yeah, and, and they're right by you because they bought their hotel um, Japanese town, which is just a few miles away. And they were specializing in, in migrant farm, farm workers because they spoke awesome. Spanish.
1: Was it Raku Shimpo he worked at yeah. <laughs> I see you John I see you.
0: Yeah so we know we know who each other are we grew up probably with the same people.
1: <laughs> yeah like Boyle Heights right like a lot of my work is about that solidarity and interfacing and overlap with Asian and Latinx communities. You know that's that's very LA for us you know. Yeah.
0: And I think a lot of people don't know that Boyle Heights was sort of the center of, of, of Japanese and Asian culture. Yeah, if you look at the cemeteries and the temples mm-hmm. and the banks and the uh, the language schools, people wonder, like, why are they all in Boyle Heights? Yeah. Because that was a Japanese uh, community. And yeah. my parents moved to Monterey Park because they couldn't afford Boyle Heights.
1: Wow. And now so happening. Mm-hmm.
0: Did your father ever begin a business?
1: Yes, and very successfully. Um so in Chinatown, again, my parents did took on whatever jobs they could. They worked at a car wash. My mom was a cashier at the car wash, and it was owned by a Taiwanese car wash owner. So she, my mom, could speak to her in Mandarin. My parents were berated for not speaking English coming to the United States, but they speak seven other languages, you know, like Vietnamese, Chinese, French, Thai, Khmer. Um, so my parents were, were luckily... Uh, found an employer who they can communicate comfortably with. And my father washed cars. And so their first venture into business was in the garment industry. So I'm a garment factory kid. My parents started out with just like two other business partners and bought two machines and started mm-hmm. manufacturing clothes for different garment um, companies. And, you know, they helped a lot of immigrant communities and refugees. So like moms who couldn't go out to work because they had to care for children, my parents would set them up with a machine at home and gave them a bunch of material. And whenever they can work and sew from home, they could. And my parents would come in the middle of the night at like 3 a.m. to pick up the goods, you know. Um, so I'm very proud that my parents are very modest, but I'm very proud that from the beginning, um, I grew up just with immigrant communities and families and supporting each other that way. And then eventually my parents were able to go solo and buy more machines and own a factory. And at the height of their career, I would say in the nineties, they were making clothes for guests, BB, you know, very well-known brands. And I never had to buy clothes. My parents just made clothes for us, but they had 200 upwards of 200 employees. Right. So that's 200 families. And again, mostly were Asian and Mexican immigrants. Um, and my experience of Thanksgiving has never been turkey and stuffing. It's always been going to the factory and sharing it with my parents' employees who we consider family even when it was two hundred. My parents would buy um roasted pork uh noodles, egg rolls, and that's how we spent our Thanksgiving every year.
0: Yeah, my grandmother might have worked for your dad she i she was one of those uh ladies who had a uh, that uh, machine uh, the sewing machine in her in her in her house and she did the it was the whole industrial sewing thing
1: yeah absolutely.
0: so I remember walking through the garment district back in the 70s it was yeah. big back then yeah so how was life for you then during this whole uh transition into uh Los Angeles
1: um when I was growing up mm-hmm. it was very difficult navigating the various ethnic identities that I had um speaking many languages and becoming American was very tricky for me um because well as you know a lot of us when we assimilate into this culture american meant you know anglo or white white culture you know um um, so it was it was hard and plus my name is not anglicized right my name is Fang. and a lot of us immigrants and refugees when we decide to become citizens we have the option to change our names and that of course ran through my mind like am i a cindy you know i even thought of like amethyst i'm like no so it was a very deliberate choice for me to keep my name, despite like being made fun of, you know, for my name. A lot of people think I'm a man. I would get Mister Fung all the time to this day. In fact, like one of my early reviews of an art show that I had um, in the early two thousands, the reviewer referred to me as as a man and Mister. You know, um, so it's it it was it was hard in many ways, but it was also it also helped me build resilience and that like never give up spirit and to keep forging forward and to also develop extreme compassion and advocacy for folks like me, you know, immigrants, refugees, people of color, uh, that sort of thing.
0: I mean, that was a, a contentious area at a contentious time, wasn't it? I mean, the, the Chinese and the Vietnamese, the Hispanics didn't necessarily get along. And then the American born Chinese, uh, Vietnamese, And Chinese didn't get along with uh, immigrant Vietnamese and Chinese. I mean, wasn't there a lot of just sort of crass uh, animosity between groups?
1: Yeah, I was called FOB all the time, like fresh off the boat. And I literally was fresh off the boat. My family escaped by going into a boat and surviving Thai pirates and landing in a refugee camp in Thailand. So, yeah, like for the, the experience of assimilation is very multi layered, um, and, and complicated, um, and even from your own, you know, like, so I'm mixed, right? Cambodian, Vietnamese and Chinese, but my family always, um, culturally identified with, with Chinese, even though my father's Cambodian because, he knew I would have more access if I, uh, if I, within the Asian community, identify as Chinese. But now I'm reclaiming that in my work and in, in my work as an educator to go back and embrace the parts of myself that were not celebrated.
0: Mm-hmm. So in, in, in elementary school, um, what kind of kid were you?
1: I was a tomboy. <laughs> I hate using that term now, especially when we talk about non-binary issues and not gendering things. Um, So in many ways, like maybe that's what I did. Like I I played with GI Joes, which is very ironic having survived the Vietnam war transformers. I always want to be tough. And I think part of that was I'm my dad's first biological child. And he's always wanted me to be a son, like to carry on the name and like to help him out in business. Um, and he's always told me that, you know, but so I think as a kid, trying to be like a boy, be tough and swear and play sports, you know, run faster than the boys was, was part of me wanting to connect deeply with my dad. Um, and I I came to drawing later. I, did, I, I you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I drew since I could walk. But I came to it later. I want to say I was really into drawing when I was seven or eight years old. Um, but my parents never wanted it to be a career choice. They said, You can do that as a hobby to keep yourself busy. But, but let's be clear, like this is not an option for you as a career, you know, and a lot of it's because they were refugees. They were worried I wouldn't be able to make a living and support myself.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, you know, when you're Asian, you have a few options, right? Business, medical, engineering. And I remember when my, 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 uh, my, my brother used to draw, my dad would take the crayon out of his hand. I mean, that was, a, that was a thing. My my, my uncle was not was an artist. My mm-hmm. father was really scared that he was going to become an artist. Mm-hmm. But then after a while, he gave us the crayons back because he realized we have no talent. <laughs> there was, no, was no possibility here.
1: <laughs> That's so funny. That's so funny. at what
0: point did you discover uh, drawing?
1: Uh, I think because my parents were always working and my grandparents took care of us, I would draw on the walls <laughs> with crayons. <laughs> Um, I get really in trouble but I always wanted to be creative I mean my mom sewed you know for like folks who grow up in the United States their introduction to art is going to museums and galleries for me it's through my culture right like my grandma taught me how to knit embroider um, my maternal grandmother made um, we call them frogs like buttons like traditional Chinese um, mm-hmm. buttons so she taught me how to do that um, so for me looking back, like that's my real first introduction to art. I love making things. And it just I'm a maker. Even today I consider myself a maker. So I never had like private art lessons or anything like that. That came later in high school when a friend of mine said, Oh, I'm taking these high school classes at Art Center College in Pasadena. They have a Saturday high program. And I'm like, Oh, I wanna do that. And so I applied and got a, a scholarship and, and, and took a class there. I took art classes throughout high school. But again, it just was never an intended major. It was something that made me feel, it was therapeutic, you know, made me feel visible. I felt good about it. I felt like I was, I was making something always make me feel like I had purpose.
0: And then in, in high school, you, you then started formally learning how to do art?
1: Yeah, I took AP art, I took drawing, I took painting. Um, I went to an all-girls Catholic high school in, in Hollywood called McLaren High School. Mm-hmm. And my parents, as soon as they could afford it, wanted me to go to a school where there are no boys. Uh, but literally, but they didn't know that they sent me to a very progressive feminist school. So that really informs um, my values, my social values.
0: Your, your dad sounds like everything I want to do with my daughter. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah
0: so and so were your parents pushing you to take all the math classes and all the science classes and
1: yeah so i was taking you know ap calculus and AP Art. you know it was i guess going back to the beginning where like i always had to i call this schizophrenic identity constantly juggling like so many different aspects of who i am that are juxtaposing right so yeah i was like had two tracks, like I'm going to be a pre med major, but I love art. I didn't want to give that up, and I was really, I felt like I was really excelling and getting awards for for art, you know, but also academics, right? Like being this perfect Asian child for my my parents.
0: And then, at what point were you? Did you um, tell your parents that this was the pathway that you wanted to go on?
1: Well, after high school, I applied to a lot of schools, and I ended up going to USC. And little did they know, I, I, I declared myself as an art major and took all these art classes and they thought I was a pre-med major. And my as a freshman at USC, I had a very influential professor. Her name's Linda Day. Uh, she passed away. Incredible artist, feminist. And um, my parents warned me, you cannot do art. Um, and this is something maybe some folks don't understand if they don't you know, grow up the way I did. A lot of like my white friends growing up, we're like, why don't you just talk to your parents? They'd understand. Like, dude, no, that's not how it works. (laughs) No, Um, you don't tell your Asian parents who literally risk their lives for you to have a better life that, hey, I want to do art. Like, just get me, you know, I mean, when I turned 16, the first thing I did when I got my license was my parents gave me the keys to the minivan and like, okay, you're going to take your siblings to school. You're going to Take your grandma to doctor's appointments. Like my upbringing as an immigrant refugee is very, very different, you know? So I can't, I can't break my parents' heart. Like I, I love them so much, so much. I have so much admiration and respect for them. For me, if I pursued art, it would literally break them. Um, but the ironic thing is my parents also risked so much for me to be able to be the best person I can be. And, and I realize like, I need, I need to try. I have to try. I'm gonna regret not trying to pursue art. I mean, if it doesn't work, I can always go back and try to be a doctor, you know? Um, and they were not happy. I broke it to them. I, I wasn't happy with the program at USC. It wasn't rigorous enough. And I, I applied to Art Center and got in. And that's when I told them, like, I got into this art school. I really want to do it. My dad was upset. He's like, what a waste of a mind. Refused to look at my work. Um, but I, I thre- like, literally kind of said, you know, if I don't do this, I, I'm not going to do anything else. Um, and so they acquiesced, but it was very, very difficult. And it was my professor, Linda Day at USC. I was crying to her about like how much my choice to pursue art literally is breaking my parents' heart. And um, she encouraged me to, you know, you got to do it.
0: Yeah, I, um, I, I think I'm, le- we're, I'm living a parallel life with your father. You know, my, <laughs> my, my, daughter, my daughter came up to me, I think uh, this year she had been going through some depression Mm-hmm. And then finally we'd ask her, like, what, what's going on? And she said, I really want to pursue this art thing. And she had told me this a, a few years ago and said, it's a great hobby. And I said, well, industrial art, there's a lot of jobs there. And engineering and art, there's a lot of thought to do there. And I think today, she, this year, she told us, like, no, no, Dad, I actually want to do art. Mm-hmm. You know? And I, I could see that it had taken her three years to, to get up to that courage. Because, as you said, that immigrant story, Right.
1: Mm-hmm. That
0: everyone suffered for you to to come here. You know, how dare you? You, you know, not go the the uh, the automatic path, right?
1: Yeah, and I can understand your point of view. And I'm a parent too, right? We want the best for our children. We worry it, it just nonstop, nonstop. But you know what's ironic, John, is that my father's entrepreneurial spirit and that that thing that drives him to leave his own country and take a risk, you know. Like, the risk he took, I inherited that. So right. that's the ironic part. You know what I mean? Right. And and I so I'm like, I'm going to make it happen, Dad. Like And that's the thing I'm sure your daughter feels about you. Like, you raised her to be a certain way, and you just have to believe that you did your job, right? Yeah. And so.
0: And it's crazy because I have a PhD in video games.
1: Well, there you go. Yeah. So it, it,
0: before it was a thing, you know, I went and said I wanted to work on special effects and I worked for digital domain and James Cameron. And this was not a thing. And when my parents would say, what's he getting a PhD? And he goes, I don't know, video games, movies. I don't know what that is.
1: Well, there you go.
0: So I was, a, you know, so I was, I told my, my daughter, that's fine. You pursue your dream. But you know, she was scared to, to tell me. And I'm, you know, three generations removed. So I can't imagine how hard it was for you to see all your father's effort and then to go, you know, like against sort of what his expectations were.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's so many challenges.
0: So how how was the art center?
1: It was, it's like the medical school of art. I, one class is from nine to four and I always had six classes. Um, I never, you know, it's known that we pull all-nighters all the time. It was you live, breathe, and did art, everything, drawing, painting, film, art history, everything. Uh, and I'm really grateful for it. You know, it, it really taught you to like, Hey, you really want this. You gotta, you gotta be able to juggle, um, an extreme, literally extreme workload where it, like physically challenges you. Um, but I tell my students all the time about if you really want it, you gotta commit to it. Um, is not easy, but if you love it, that's that's what you have to do. You know.
0: Yeah, my my brother in law designs uh, shoes for Nike, and he says most kids you get out of an art uh, art school, they'll have one talent, maybe illustration, maybe painting, just one talent. The ones coming out of art school, um, uh, art center, they have three. There are th- <laughs> th- at least three things where you look at that, and you're like, you're top of the, your field. In these three areas, you just don't see it from any other school than the art center.
1: But it also taught us discipline and business acumen, right? Like, I think for folks who don't go to art school, they think like, oh, artists and, and art, school, art students are like kind of flighty and just do what we feel and we smoke pot. And like, no, it ain't like that. Like, you wake up at the crack of dawn, you work till 3 a.m., you work. It's a discipline. Like, and that's why I tell my students too, you know, art isn't about feeling and expressing yourself. It is, it is. But if you want to make it happen, it's a commitment. It's getting up and working and showing up, being on time. And so that's what Art Center did too. In addition to ex, like having this verbal, I mean, not verbal, but visual expression and understand what kind of creative you are, but being professional. You know, like getting back to people and knowing how to create an invoice and knowing how to be an administrator and administrate your, your, your business side of the art. And that's really hard for a lot of artists to do.
0: Yeah. When, I've, I've, when I have talked to my, my brother-in-law who went to a, a regular university, University of Utah, mm-hmm. and I asked him, so how many people in your design um, uh, cohort are actually working in the field? He tells me about three of us are, are actual professional artists. Mm -hmm. And then when I talked to, I just, I know this woman who works who's from the art center. And I said, okay, so how many people in your group are professionals in art? She said, all of us,
1: Mm -hmm. all of
0: us, all of us.
1: Yeah.
0: And then, so what was, when you went there, did you feel like I'm, I'm as good as these people? Or did you feel overwhelmed? Or did you feel, how did you feel?
1: No, and see, that's again, another Asian slash immigrant. Thing where you don't feel like you're the best. In fact, you feel like you're an imposter, right? Mm -hmm. So I never went in like cocky. I'm the best. Um, I was excited, but also intimidated. I was very. I was only 18, and at that time, most people are in their mid 20s. Because people who go to art center don't go right after high school. They take their general education. They develop a portfolio. Um, So I was really young, and I was like behind the curve. Everybody was like way ahead of me, which I think is an advantage because if you start at the bottom and everybody's at the top, then you have a gauge of where you need to go up, right? Whereas like if you start at the top and everybody is is not performing at your level, then you're not challenged. You just kind of coast. So I felt very lucky that uh, I was challenged, inspired and it was intimidating, but on the most part, very beneficial to be surrounded by Incredible artists. I mean, everybody, like you said, shoe designers, transportation, industrial designers, um, artists, and everything, everything. Like, it was a completely crazy, different, and inspiring world for me as a young person. What was your specialty? I just knew I loved to draw and paint, right? So then... For me, my major when I went to Art Center was illustration. And that was kind of my negotiation with my parents. I told them, I'm not gonna be a starving artist. I'm gonna get an illustration degree and then I'll go work for Disney. I'll get a job, you know? Um, but of course, when I went to school, I'm like, I don't wanna be a hack. I don't I don't wanna just make what Mickey Mouse tells me and Mickey Mouse gets to sign off on it, you know? Thank you, Walt, right? So I, um, I had two portfolios. Uh, I had an illustration portfolio as an undergrad, and I developed a fine art portfolio. And the illustration portfolio would help me get jobs, right? And then Mm -hmm. my fine art portfolio was what I felt was art. It was my personal expression. Like I was making making figurative paintings about my family, about feet binding, you know. But then I had this illustration portfolio where I did caricatures, where I knew I could get jobs. But I I knew I wanted to be a professor of art. I always knew that. Like I always admired my teachers and what they gave to me. I always wanted to give back by being an educator. So I knew I wanted to get into a good graduate program. So that's why I had two portfolios. So by the time I graduated from Art Center, I had an illustration portfolio, got an agent, and was like making editorial illustrations. So I was making illustrations for like Rolling Stone magazine, American Airlines magazine. At that time before like the internet was hot, it was all print, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got into – to New York University. I really wanted to go to Yale, but I messed up my interview. So that's, <laughs> that's a really bad story. <laughs> but, well, tell us. I guess I should share students. So you learn from my mistakes. <laughs> um, when you apply to Yale, you get shortlisted and interview. Um, so I was like so lucky to even be interviewed, right? Like I made the shortlist to interview. And interviewing means you go in front of Yale professors and you bring your paintings and they interview you. So the night before I was out with my friends uh, drinking and, um, on a whim, I'm like, you know what? I want to pierce my tongue. You know, I just, like, oh, that? that's kind of cool. Like this is what the late nineties, right? Sure. So I'm like, yeah, I, let me, let's go. Let's do it. A bad idea you know, like my tongue the next day was swollen, I can barely talk. So needless to say, when I flew to New Haven, I messed up my interview, messed it up bad. And I think that even without the tongue piercing, it was so I just was not equipped, you know, and I'm feeling like now in this era, we're talking about systemic racism and whiteness, it was so white, Yale, I mean, the kind of language they were talking about, I didn't have access to fancy art schools. I didn't have access to, you know, private tutors who taught me dissecting Shakespeare and my parents never took me to museums. So I didn't know who all of these blue chip artists such as like Jackson Pollock and, you know, all these textbook artists were. So I didn't have the language or access to be able to express myself in the terms that these Yale professors expected me to know. Right. Like I said, my art was being a refugee and immigrants from my grandparents. It's from the people, you know, and not from fancy museums and art galleries that have traditionally colonized and stolen from other countries and only give to the wealthiest and the whitest, right? Right. And so, like, I messed up, but good thing I messed up because then I ended up at New York University where I got my graduate degree.
0: So let me ask this. What's the difference between art and design?
1: Um, That's a very good question. For me, art is more porous Um, And you can define it in so many ways. Design tends to be linked to function, right? Like Mm -hmm. when you design something, it's connected to a function and a purpose. um, And it's deliberate decision-making that is really connected to how you live your life. I mean, that's how I can best describe it. Mm -hmm. So like, um, you know, designing a shoe or designing a car, you're making very specific decisions about elements such as line, and color, but all of those aesthetic decisions are tied to what this thing you're designing is going to do. Whereas I feel like design and art are connected, and a lot of artists need to know how to design. But art encompasses m- many more categories and um, connected to you know personal expression and individual expression.
0: Mm-hmm. Someone someone once told me that art is what you do for yourself, and design is what you're paid for.
1: Kinda. Kind of, but you know what? What I like about design, um, and this is what I tell my st- I teach design actually, mm-hmm. um, is that it's a noun and a verb, whereas art is like an object that you make, right? But like design, what I like about design is it's both about the process of making your maker and your connection to the thing that you're making. So that's what I love about design.
0: Mm-hmm. So then, how was NYU?
1: Again, you know, I always have, like, it's always hard in the beginning, right? Like, I'm from L.A. I'm an L.A. girl, right? And now I'm in New York, completely culture shock, but so invigorated. I love the speed. I love the um, total immersion of art. Um, I mean, the Met. Lachman doesn't compare to the Met, you know what I mean? Like, it was Uh such an art mecca, theater, music, live. It was so different, and I love that. I love because I'm, like, I'm learning and I'm in a completely different environment. And I love how NYU wasn't like a dormitory experience like a lot of universities. NYU is well integrated into the city itself. So I never felt like there's my university life and then there's my personal life. It was all very integrated. Um, I was one of they, they had a very um, selective admission process back then because as a graduate student, you get your own studio. And I was one of seven who were admitted that year. And, uh, the only Asian and one of two people of color who were admitted that year.
0: And then, how were your how How was your cohort? Did you enjoy just spending time with the other students?
1: Why you ask? Any graduate art student, we all hated grad school <laughs> 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 because it's it's cutthroat. I mean, critiques—you're constantly challenged. It's like putting yourself in the boxing ring, whether it's your cohort, your um, professors, your challenge, 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 nonstop. But I want to say my peers were, were very supportive. We were very close. Um, but again, what what I spoke about with that interview at Yale crept up again in my education. I didn't have a white art school education, right? And And my work was, I did painting, but I wanted to make work about um, Chinese feet binding. So a lot of the work that I did had Asian bodies, Asian female bodies, and a lot of my professors and cohort were like, "We don't get this. It's very introspective. So does this mean only Asian people? It's only for Asian people? But if I made an abstract drawing like Jackson Pollock, or if I painted yeah. white people, which I had before, no one ever questioned it ever, right? Because like whiteness is seen as universal and neutral. But anytime you paint an Asian or black or brown body, then it's like, oh my god, what is this? you
0: know but so what I, you what you were doing then became very big
1: I guess I,
0: I think so now in terms of you know I think that's I mean when I go to museums now for the past ten years I, I've really seen a lot of that of like the bindings and just sort of the things that we we've forced women to do in in many other countries and including our own country to sort of have this image of beauty which yeah. is which deforms her body and I think in the past 10 years, it's it's really been a focal point of a lot of the museums I've gone to.
1: Yeah, and I think that's great. We want to see progress. We want to see the needle keep moving forward, yeah. right? But I think where it becomes problematic is when artists like me... Um, and artists who make works that are very gender or ethnic or racially specific that were tokenized. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you'll have your time, you know, or like for me, example, always putting being put in like Asian American shows. Like, why can't I, you know, be put in just an art art show. Right.
0: Yeah. Like when you go to Mocha, you can see it like, Oh yeah, this is our, this is the issue for the day. And this is our special showing. But the stuff that stays up there, that's yeah. up there year after year after yeah. year. You're right. It's absolutely abstract.
1: Yeah. Like May is my busiest month. Why? It's AAPI Heritage Month, right? I so, was <laughs> so like, Rose, what about the 11 other months? <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah, I understand exactly what you're saying. But I think at one point, probably when you were doing it, it was completely ignored, right? At least now there's just some recognition.
1: Yeah. 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 Right.
0: Mm -hmm. So there's progress, but not definitely not where we want to be.
1: Yeah. And, you know, as a parent and as an educator, we're willing to put ourselves on the line if we know that we're contributing to progress and that the younger generation, those who come after us, are going to have an easier or more, an easier time. Nothing's ever easy and that their opportunities would would be more, right? Like we're always trying to open that and create a floodgate. Um so I feel like that's where I'm at in my career now, you know.
0: So after so uh after NYU what happened?
1: Um so throughout NYU living in New York as I was pursuing my my degree in fine art, I was also working. Like no one knew this. I mean, my cohort didn't. You know, I would like stay up all hours of the night like making work for my graduate degree but also making illustrations to pay my bills. And I'm glad for that. So after New York, I moved back to L.A. because my um, husband at the time lived in Los Angeles. Like, okay, time to come home now. <laughs> so I moved back to L.A. and I didn't want to. I didn't because I fell in love with New York and didn't want to leave. So that was really hard for me. But at the end of the day, I'm glad I came back to L.A. because um, I really identify with being an Angelina, you know. Um, so, yeah, I came back to L.A., it was hard to find a job and it was hard. I was like, dang, I have a master's degree from New York university and could not get a job because in LA we are saturated with artists. There's, you throw a stone, it'll hit an artist. You know what I mean? (laughs) So I'm competing with all these artists. Right. Um, so I had to work retail. I worked in this, you know, paper store, making wedding invitations, making like $10 an hour just to pay the bills. Um, and then illustration too. I was illustrating and just, I'll be honest, John, it was not easy. It was hard. And it was, it was just like, oh my gosh, what did I do? I let my parents down. But again, your refugee reflex kicks in is like, you're not dead yet. So get your, get back up and keep moving forward, right? Your parents didn't come here for you to complain and give up. And so I kept like sending out resumes and slowly, like I was teaching at art center, teaching at East LA college, you know, adjuncting making illustration, getting shows and public artwork. Like that was amazing. Like my first public artwork was to create artwork for the Metro uh, Orange Line, which is right in front of our campus, right? So the Laurel Canyon station on the Orange Line is my station and I made art um, for that station.
0: So how do you, how do you, do you submit your piece and then you then do it to scale if they accept
1: it? Yeah. So with public artworks, you have to be vetted. There's a committee of, you know, like Metro people, arts professionals, people from the community who select artists to make public art. So there would be a call and you apply. And usually in the application, you write a cover letter, you submit your resume, you submit samples of your art. And that's what I did. And, you know, with any of these, you can have anywhere from 80 to hundreds of applicants. And then, Usually you're shortlisted and become a finalist and you make a proposal and then you're selected. Um, Yeah. So I learned a lot, you know, throughout the way, like doing all kinds of art in so many ways and showing in galleries and museums. You know, the the summer before I graduated from graduate school, I interned at Gagosian Gallery in Beverly Hills and I just showed the director, you know, here's my art. And the receptionist was like, you're going to show him your art? Do you know, like, Andy Warhol, they show Andy Warhol and all that. They're not going to care about your work. I'm like, I'm just going to try. And he, luckily, his name is Robert Shapazian. He really became my mentor. He loved my work and gave me a chance. Like, once you graduate from um, NYU, I'm going to give you a show. That is so rare, John. That never happens, right? He gave me a show. It got reviewed. And that, like, really helped and spearheaded my career. Mm -hmm.
0: So how do you normally get shows? Do you have to just do you get an agent or do you have to actually walk into walk into galleries and, and ask?
1: You do not walk in, that is so gauche. Like right, like you cannot walk into a gallery, they will turn you away because they get people all the time. Unfortunately, it's like it's people you know, right? I mean, the right way is you email the director, hey, you know, I would love to to submit a packet and show you my work now you have a website ask them for a studio visit you just literally have to knock on doors constantly and a lot Mm -hmm. of times a cold call gets you nowhere so really knowing people so in my case like i knew the director because i interned at the gallery right you just or if you know somebody who knows somebody that's going to help but it's really hard getting gallery shows but what helps is if you go to graduate school they usually give you an exhibition before you graduate and you invite people to those shows, and if you grab the attention of a curator or a gallerist at your graduate show, that really helps.
0: So what are the characteristics that you need to be successful in this business?
1: Literally resilience, because you're going to get so many people. You're going to get lots of people. I told my students, a lot of people who are going to love your work, and you're going to have a lot of people who don't. You can't please everybody. You don't make work for everybody, and that's, that's something that I learned, because Early on in art school, as an artist, you think, oh, you make art for a universal audience. And that is not true. You don't make work for everybody because everybody has different tastes. You have to know yourself as an artist, why you make art. And you're going to connect with those who are similar to you. Yeah. So I think key is resilience and key is, is honesty. And most importantly, honesty with yourself because the art world is very sticky. You're going to get people like, well, don't paint that. Paint this. It'll sell. Or why do you do this? people will challenge you. So as an artist, you need to have resiliency and you really need to have honesty.
0: Yeah, that was my fear when my when my daughter said she wanted to be in this field because I've seen it. I've seen it up close. You know, there's maybe 20 programmers, but we had 200 artists and, and great artists.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I had sat and had lunch with so many of them and telling me about their stories. And, you know, have, having someone go in and just go, that's wrong or that's terrible or... I mean, I've just seen them chewed out. Yeah. You know, I remember being in, uh, watching a trailer, uh, not a trailer, but a daily, and one of the really famous people in, in in film, and he's hired for his eye. He doesn't paint at all. He just looks at the eye. And he's screaming, like, there's too much purple in the sky. And mm-hmm. I just see a sky. And I remember <laughs> looking at the artist next to me and saying, do you see it? He goes, I couldn't for the longest time. I'm starting to see what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. And, but, you know, and we used to have uh, producers come by and they try to treat us like artists where they would say, paint faster. (laughs) Like, you can only paint so fast. Yeah. Right? And they would come to us and go, program faster. Like, "Eh, it doesn't work that way. And they, because they couldn't see our work, but everyone has an opinion about art and everyone thinks it's way easier than it is.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's not. And it's not completely subjective all the time, you know?
0: So how did you get to Valley
1: College? So before I applied to Valley College, I always was, out, you know, like everybody else, adjuncting, looking for that full-time position. Because, you know, as a full-timer, you can settle your roots. You're part of a community. You're really giving. And you're really part of something. So at the time, before I um, arrived at Valley, I was teaching part-time at ELAC. I was teaching at a private school called Rebay Academy and was department chair of the art department. I was an artist, all of these things. And the position came up at Valley and the last, that was at 2009. And the last time they had a full-time hire was, um, 1988. (laughs) Uh So that's, um, that's how many years, 1988 to 2009 is what? Um, 21 years. (laughs) I know
0: you have to wait for someone to die.
1: It's crazy. Right? Isn't it? It Because they're not
0: creating more positions.
1: And mind you, John, before the Valley job came up, I was a finalist at Boston University. I was a finalist at Pomona College. I was a finalist at Pasadena City College. You know how it is. It is not like folks are like, oh, when I graduate, I'll just teach. It is not easy getting a professor position, especially in L.A., you know? I, suppose, I think yeah. the
0: best thing to do is to move out of LA. I tell math teachers that also, also that you've got to get out of LA. There's just too many there's just too many colleges here.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tough competition, right? So, yeah, I was a finalist and I just had my son, my second son, you know, um, went to the interview and was really honest about who I was and why I was there and it came down, you know how it is to two candidates, me and at that time, Carol Bishop. And Carol, um, who passed away in December, I really miss her, was teaching there. She's, she was an incredible artist. She showed at the Louvre, influenced by the work of Frank Lloyd Wright. She was teaching adjunct at Valley for 12 years. So here's somebody who's put in her time, right? So you can imagine like, I'm, I'm up against this incredible incredible artists, right? And we both interviewed, and at that time, I think it was Sue Carlio. Do you remember President Sue Carlyle? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Sandy Mayo, the VP. Yep. They literally couldn't decide between the two of us because we we had very different skill sets, and so they hired the both of us.
0: Wow. <laughs> to create a position for you guys.
1: Yeah, which was very unusual, and they were able to do that because um, we, we had one more hire that would have made the cut, but didn't, you know, mm-hmm. for that year. And also, we hadn't had a hire since 1988, <laughs> <laughs> and it was really a blessing because like, Karen and I were, were an amazing team. She wasn't easy all the time, but I love her toughness. Like, God, I really miss her. Um, um, we were we were a team. She was, you know, we were like yin and yang between the two of us and our different approaches and our different skill sets. You know she would speak her mind and I'm like, chill out, Carol. There's a different way we can say it. You know? <laughs> and I love that lady, man. She would say, Oh, I'm so glad I talked to you, I feel better about it. And she would mm-hmm. always make me feel better. Like sometimes I, I I just didn't have it in me to speak up and she would do it for me. You know, I'm like, God, thank God Carol said and I did it, you know? Mm-hmm. And we did that naturally without even saying it to each other. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, I came to Valley.
0: So since you come to Valley, so how has your experience been?
1: Like anything very up and down. I love our students. Number one, love our students. I can't emphasize that enough. I learned so much from them. I learned so much from them. Um, during COVID, it was so hard not to see them, not to connect with them. But it is really about a family. Community is family, you know, when and maybe being raised Southeast Asian. You know, um, my mom always said, your teacher is like another parent. So when I see our students, it's like we're family. I'm not only responsible for your education, I'm responsible for your well-being. So I love when we talk about serving our students because that's what we do. And I remember one student would always call me teacher Mm-hmm. And I, I give myself, my students the option. You can come out, call me professor Hwen or Fung, first name basis It's fine. Whatever you feel comfortable with. Right. But this one student he's, he's Armenian. He always Ruben. That's if you're out there, Ruben, I'm giving you a shout out. <laughs> <laughs> he would always call me teacher and I would let it, you know, cause a lot of my Latinx students would call me teacher too. Right. Um, and one, one day he said, you know why I call you that? I go, why? He goes, a professor professes, a teacher teaches, and you teach, and that's why I call you teacher. <laughs> and um, I love that.
0: Yeah, it's very comfortable for me to be on this campus because we have so many immigrant uh, students,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that's what I'm comfortable with. Yeah. And we also have a lot of non traditional students, kind of like how your, your father had to make a midlife career change. Mm-hmm. And then, again, that's something what I grew up with also. Mm-hmm. So when I when I walk around Valley College, um, a lot of times I'm a little jealous because the Japanese um, community has sort of diversified. Mm-hmm. We've already become part of basically white culture. Mm-hmm. There's no longer a, a Japanese town now owned by Koreans. There's no sort of Japanese area within
1: within. There's Torrance, John. There's
0: Torrance. It, Torrance-ish, right? <laughs> but all of those um, large couple, the uh, Toyota and stuff like that, they're all moving to Mexico. And we don't have new immigration. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like when I go to the Japanese schools when I was a kid, there was 80 kids. When I go now, there's like there's like 10. Like my kids are the last generation yeah. of actual Japanese. So when I walk around campus and I see these three generations of Armenians and they keep their culture, and same with yeah. the Hispanic students, yeah. I look at that with a, with jealousy of, I remember that feeling of a a community like that, that family community. Mm -hmm. And I love that about our our college.
1: But I think for the JA community, it's different because of the incarceration during World War II, right? Like the JA community was so shocked into like, well, we have to assimilate. I think
0: the parents that went to the uh, camps, they went because they wanted to show that they were good citizens. Mm -hmm. But their children fought back.
1: Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm.
0: all the people who fought the 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 laws, mm-hmm. like Korematsu and stuff like that, mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. were all 18, 19, 20. They went to court and they fought it. Mm-hmm. So there was a strong JA community, mm-hmm. um, but they were the generation of the children who went to the camps.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So let me ask this. Yeah. Okay, I got I got a bunch of quick questions. Sure. Right. Shoot. If you if I want to go, if I want art to be my um my career. Yeah. Do you recommend an, an art college or a university?
1: I would tell my students a university with a great art department, cause then they'll give you access to different disciplines in scholarship. I always tell my students, don't just do art. You know, take sociology, take a language, um, take welding, take theater. Like you need to have access to as many tools as you can. So that's um, my recommendation. But also art school is hella expensive, John. You know so although i I really am grateful for my education and having that rigorous training, it's not worth the ticket price at all. I yes. mean art center now you'll graduate with close to two hundred thousand dollars in debt if you can't pay for tuition like that's ridiculous, and just you know you and i we're we're community college educators right we we um we are advocates for public education, so I feel like, you know what, students, you can get a good arts education at a Cal State. You see a state school with a strong art department and maybe grad school go to art school. But I wouldn't sway if a student told me, but I also tell my students, but apply. You never know. Like I had one student who was like, I want to go to Otis, but I can't afford it. I'm like, apply. He ended up with scholarships. I told
0: my my daughter that I would pay, the only art school I would pay for is Art Center. Otherwise, go to like a Cal Poly or UC. Um, I talked to this one guy. I guess my my brother-in-law is in that place where he makes um, soccer shoes for um, Fedor. So one of the top soccer players. But he wants to get to a point where he does the entire line of shoes. So the pants, the matching jacket, everything, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have another relative who does that for packaging. Mm -hmm. And he he went to Cal Poly Pomona. I'm sorry. Cal Poly Slow, San Luis Obispo. Mm-hmm. And he was, we were having this conversation. He was saying that, you know, like Art Center, they're pretty special. But if you want to get to that next level of, of being able to be in charge of an entire series, mm-hmm. um, an art director, that being able to have that whole university education is important. Mm-hmm. So would you recommend FIDM Um Or Parsons or Cal Arts?
1: Again, I would if that's, right, if you're going to fit them you're in fashion design and, and being in downtown, you're going to have access to the industry, um, but you got to get mad scholarships. Again, I, I mean, I wouldn't pay that ticket price.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't either. I wouldn't. I usually tell my students apply, but if you don't get money, don't go.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think the
0: other thing too is like, if you want to do animation, the best place is CalArts. Yeah. But the sixth thing about CalArts is that they have Warner Brothers and Disney animators as your teachers. Mm-hmm. So they'll see your work. And if you're good enough, within two years, they'll tap you on the shoulder and say, don't graduate. We have a job with you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So the ones that graduate aren't good enough.
1: But you know, I tell my students, like I said, when I interned, that's how I, I got my door open, right? Like, don't wait until you graduate. Try to get internships. Yeah. And whether you go to LAVC, UCLA or CalArts, if you have a badass portfolio, I can say that on the podcast, right? Yep. If you have a badass portfolio, you're gonna rise to the top. Cream always rises, right? Yep. So yep. if you can get somebody to look at your portfolio, you're good. Yeah. But I'm glad you mentioned that that, John. Like that's something I'm proud of at Valley in the art department. All of us do it professionally too. You know what I mean? Like when students take our classes, we're not just your teachers. This is what we teach, what we do. We bring it to the table. We bring it to the classroom.
0: And then what should be in your portfolio?
1: It depends on what kind of artist you want to be. I mean, an animation portfolio is going to be different than a fashion or fine art portfolio. Mm -hmm. But I always tell my students, your portfolio should reflect your diverse skill sets, but not look eclectic. Your portfolio can't look like I'm a jack of all trades. It has to be very clear your direction. Right. So your direction could be I'm an oil painter or um, I am uh, I'm into mid-century modern furniture. You have to be very clear when someone looks at your portfolio like that's a you, whoever you are, um, but also show that I'm not narrow. I can do this, this and this and this. You know, that's what I always tell my students.
0: Okay, And then if someone is just, you know, hey, I, I, I like art, but I don't know much about it. Where were you? Rec- what museums would you recommend locally? Because we got great ones here.
1: Which, of course, we have the ones like LACMA, MOCA, Getty, like those are the big wigs, right? Mm-hmm. But we live in LA and we're lucky because we have so many different options, like the culturally specific museums like JANM, like the California African American Museum, like MOLA, the Museum of Latin American Art, right? Like those culturally specific institutions. Skirball, but even smaller community-based institutions. Like in the Valley, Tia Chuchas is great. Um, There's uh, Self-Help Graphics is a favorite of mine, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And look at your smaller, it could be your neighbor for crying out loud, who has a a (laughs) community garden, you know? So for me, I'm deconstructing those ideas of high-end art, you know, anybody can do art, everybody should have art, everybody should have it in their lives. It doesn't mean that it, it's not in LACMA, that it's not art, you know? Yeah.
0: yeah. Although I think they just tore down LACMA. It won't be up until 2004. Oh, boy. They actually tore down the, the original three buildings. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's so, a controversy.
0: But for those of you who want, I guess, who want to get into um, just see art for free, um, the last two buildings of LACMA are still there, and they've got a great promotion where Kids under eighteen get a uh, up to eighteen uh, membership pass.
1: Yes, the next gen pass, and yep. you can bring two adults.
0: Right. Adult, it, right? So it's wonderful because the kid is that is the kid's uh, ticket, and you are the kid's guest into the museum for free.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And then if you have small uh, small kids, I love Skirball. Yeah. So Skirball has wonderful, really relatable for small kids. Uh, uh, showings, art art showings. A lot of times they'll just be illustrations from from children's stores. Mm-hmm. And then in back, when you go in back, they have a great Noah's Ark for the kids to run yeah. around.
1: Yeah, I love that Noah's Ark.
0: That's my kid's favorite museum growing up. Yeah. And then why don't you tell us about your um, your art piece that you are working on currently?
1: Oh my gosh, it's been a crazy year. So I just finished a major installation at LA County USC Medical Center. It's an artwork called Sobrevivir, which means to su- survive or keep alive. And I was commissioned by, you know, um, the hospital to create an art piece to recognize the history of core sterilization at the hospital. So between 1968 and 1974, over 200 Mexican mothers were sterilized without informed consent. And there's an amazing documentary called No Mas Pedes that was produced in 2015 about this. Um, and so it is the greatest honor to be that artist, to make this artwork, to express the apologies from the county and from the hospital to these mothers so that it's never, ever, ever forgotten. So. I just completed it. And it's a piece, it's a floor artwork made of Corten steel. It's about 22 feet in diameter. So 32 panels of Corten steel um, that lights from the bottom and on the wall surrounding the sculpture, the floor sculpture are the words of the mothers who survived. And we're still waiting for the unveiling. We're waiting for the LA County Board of Supervisors to announce the unveiling, but that's like the latest major, major project that I did.
0: Well, I want to thank you for for joining us. What an amazing story! And for me personally, with this conversation, I've been having with my daughter has been really helpful.
1: I'm so glad. Fun. Don't be so hard on her, okay, John? Huh? I said, don't be so. Well, hard you know on what?
0: Her. You gave me really good advice. I had a. I have a few friends that are artists because you know we're Asian and we worry about like, okay, if it's not math, what do we do now? <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you tell, and a couple artists said what she should do is draw what she loves.
1: Yeah, you want her, right? That's the irony. Is like you want your daughter to be happy, right? Yeah. And and like there's a beautiful poem by um, Khalil Gibran from Lebanon, and he describes being a parent like being a bow, and the child's the arrow. And all we can do is hold steady and support and allow the arrow to go as far as it can go. And that's always been my my approach to teaching Mm -hmm. and to raising my voice.
0: Well, thank you. I really appreciate all the advice. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, John.